Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so as I just said, some little bonus content. Uh, and again, if you just listening in, uh, you can get these at drivebeck.com or Animal Behavior. So, um, today I thought we'd talk about communication, if you guys want to talk about it. Um, animals basically spend a lot of time communicating about a lot of different things. Now, sometimes this communication is about defense. So, when you think about bird songs and bird call, a lot of that is one animal telling another, this is mine, stay away. Um, this is not, not just with, with bird song, though. This can also be with chemical uh, indications of some sort. Like uh, big cats have, have a territory. Uh, almost all big cats are uh, solitary, except for lions. Well, all cats are solitary except for lions. That's about it. So that I'm including my house cats. So what they do is they have a male or a female in their territory, and what they do to market is they just pee all over. Right? And this explains the, the behavior of, in fact, of a lot of cats. It's very hard to get a house cat to stop them from pissing on stuff. Because what they're doing is they're marking territory. There's that, and they also have glands in their, uh, in their neck that mark, that leave a scent. Whenever you think a cat's being nice and pleasant to you and rubbing up against you, it's marking its territory. We have... See, cats were domesticated until a couple of thousand years ago, really, whereas dogs have been with us for maybe 100,000 years. So uh, the house cat is much closer to like a European wood cat, which is probably they evolved from, and they're pretty much still a wild animal. Right? I remember saying to a friend of mine, it would be cool, I don't like cats that much, I have had cats, I don't like cats that much, but a cool cat the size of a great Dane would be awesome. They said, I don't think you want a cat that big. And he's probably right. So when they rub up against you, that's also communication, right? Because that's telling other cats, get away from here. Don't go near those speakers. I pissed all over them. Just that's a personal thing that happened to a set of speakers on. Uh, of course, mating, we have all kinds of mating rituals, everything from the embed fly, giving the silk gift to the female. That's communication. That's like saying, hey, baby. Sort of what they're saying there. Brought you a little something. And of course, bird song again has that function. Uh, food sources as well. There are food calls that, that, that uh, a lot of different species do. Again, I'm thinking about birds here. There might be a call that says, This is a good food item. Okay? And when that happens, then others will show up. And again, you tend to do that around family. Right? So be among relatives. Now, we could also, today we'll talk about uh, the dance language of honeybees, which is really awesome. And the beautiful thing about this is there are bees communicating to other bees where food is. So these are possibilities for communication. To center of communication, we need a sender and a receiver. So it's sort of like if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, is it a sound? If an animal makes a call and no one's there to hear, uh, there to hear it, is it communication? And by our definition, we'd say no. Might call it attempted communication. Even when you think about coloration, we talked about last time we talked about mimicry, that is um, a case of uh, communication. Look at me, I'm dangerous. 
We had to look at the evolution of change and the adaptive value, of course, both as well. things is the dance language of the honeybees. I should have language in quotes because it ain't really a language. There's a honeybee. We've seen them before. The function of this is to communicate the location of food sources uh, to members of a hive. This is, again, sisters to other sisters or super sisters, I guess they're called, giving information to each other where food is. Okay. The hive members then interpret the dance. It's, it's interpretive dance. And determine where to go foraging. They go in the right direction and distance, or sometimes just the right direction, depends on the dance being done, and find the food. And we know, and I'll, uh, I'll tell you this when we finish talking about the dance language, that in fact what they do is they, they, they take this information and they integrate it into uh, a representation, a map-like representation they have of their area. And we know that uh, from a couple of brilliant experiments. So it's not, they don't just go the direction of distance, they also say, they sort of plot it out and say, where would that be on my map of the area we live in? And that's pretty damn neat. The simplest dance is the round dance. This is used if the food is less than 50 meters away. The number of circuits at a given time tell how far away the food is. Basically what the bee does is it just goes around in circles. And the faster they go around in circles, the further away the food is. Okay. So the number of circuits is proportion, per unit time is proportional to the distance that the food is. This isn't giving you anything about direction, but of course it's less than 50 meters, it's not very far. So if the bee gets out there and starts flying, let's say that the distance says, you know, 30 meters, plus at 30 meters, you can just do a circuit and find out where it is. So that's pretty simple. So there's no direction of information with the round dance. So you can see here, this is what happens. B just goes around in circles, and the others sort of follow it around and interpret this. So if it's, then we can make up a number. If it's five circuits per minute, that means it's 50 meters away. I, I don't really know what the numbers are. It probably varies high to high. They then just go out in the direction that they're being told, sorry, in the distance they're being told, and find basically where the food is. This is impressive, I think we all agree, but it isn't nearly as interesting. The, the first three questions about this? Pretty straightforward thing. I don't think it's nearly as interesting as the black dance. The waggle dance is if the food source is greater than 50 meters away. The waggle dance is going to give direction and distance. This is going to allow individual hive members to look around and say, okay, I should go this distance, this direction, and I will find a bunch of flowers loaded with nectar. 
or if it's an experiment, a big cup of supersaturated sugar water, which is what people typically use. Now, there are redundant sources of distance information here, which is quite cool. So it's not just one source of distance information like the round dance. We have number of circuits, so it's like it's got parts of the round dance in it, the number of times it goes around in a circle. It's got the number of waggles. What they do is they waggle their abdomen back and forth. They also do little bursts of sound. One would guess there are buzzes, because that's all bees do. Little bursts. I don't know how the bees can hear one bee from another when there's 10,000 freaking bees in there, but we know that this works. These are all proportional to the distance that the animal has to travel. And this distance can be in the order of kilometers, by the way. Okay. And the angle, of, there's a straight line portion of the dance, and uh, you will see in a second when I give you a, a diagram of this, that there's a, there's a straight line part, then a circular part, and then a straight line part, and that's when they're doing the wagon, that's when they're getting down. <laughs> and making the donuts. And that gives compass direction, the angle. And up in the, in the, in the hive, so down is the ground, up is the sky, up is where the sun is in the sky right now. So if you go 30 degrees off, so if they're if there's the up-down axis in the hive, and when they're doing their dance, they're this distance off, this, this angle off, and we'll call this angle A. Okay? And when they're doing the straight line portions, there's the waggle portion, or sorry, the, the circuit portion, then the straight line portion, then a circuit, then a straight line. That angle A is what was this angle different from the sun. So then when the, when the animal goes outside of the hive, and it sees the sun is here. Love the diagram. It then goes on an angle 30 degrees from that, or let's call it 80 degrees from that. Right? So it's going to be in. So the sun's sort of, it's hard to do this in two dimensions. Sun's pointing here, high is here, so you're going to go, yeah, 30 degrees out. So sort of out towards us. So it's hard to actually show it. I got a better picture in a second. I never had a trouble drawing that. Alright? That's pretty cool. So that's, this is pretty cool. By the way, they're forced to dance in the open air. So if you take the bees and you take them out, or they just return from foraging, and, or you don't let them in, and you put them on a, a flat board, they will actually, the straight line portion will literally be exactly where they're supposed to be pointing. So they don't do the up in the hive is where the sun is. They just do the direction. So here you go. So you can see this is the, there's the angle from the sun I guess it was 20 degrees here, 20 degrees off, up, up and down. But if you force them out into a piece of what looks like plywood here, they'll actually do the dance that way. Here's where the food source is. 
So they ignore the up is sun rule. It's pretty neat. It's pretty really neat. Okay. You have questions about that? It's pretty nifty, isn't it? This, by the way, was discovered by Von Frisch, um, who's a pretty important uh, ethologist. He even used little mechanical bees uh, and was, allowed, was, was able to impart information to the other bees and then they went and searched for it. He told with a little mechanical bee told them to. That's pretty cool. Robot bees. I, I can't see that ending well. All right. This obviously is complicated. It didn't, ha didn't happen in evolution once. There's no way this would have happened all at once. So we can reconstruct this. And in fact, uh, Lindauer has, has pretty much been the guy that looked at the reconstruction. First of all, all honeybees dance. They're all different kinds of honeybees. All of them dance. All other aphids dance. So now we're at basically the family. Some are honeybees, some of them are. Um, but Apis floria uses an open air sort of dance floor, kind of like what we saw when they, in that diagram, they take them and put them out on a piece of wood. So the next step before the honeybee dance was the idea of dancing out in the open. That's Apis floria right there. You can see it doesn't look that much different than a, than a honeybee. It's very uh, interesting. So some trigona species, this is a different kind of bee altogether. They get really excited when they find food, they just hum. There's food up there somewhere. They're standing there. And they actually give out a little bit of food that they've just found in the process. They regurgitate a little bit of nectar to the other bees. Come on, first taste is free. <laughs> There's some Dragona there. I just wanted to get a picture of a guy who's wearing a bee, a beard of bees. I don't know why. You ever seen that? People do this. This is actually a real Guinness record, largest beard of bees. These people were idiots. <laughs> but he was using Trogona. What about Trogona species there? Uh, little set mark. So when you get there, leave a little set mark, a little pheromone, so they get all excited, they fly out, and then you can be guided a little bit. You know, follow your nose. Or really your extendable mouth parts. There are bugs out there. Meloponas, different kind of bee again, give out pulses of sound. This sort of leads them out, and I think of a picture of these guys here. Yeah. And what they do is they have pulses of sound, and they sort of lead them out towards the direction. Pulses of sound, we know, 
We know about buzzing, so all these things sort of fit in together. so it's best to get food quickly and getting others involved makes sense. This isn't a case. This isn't altruism. It's more than we get there. We might still do altruism. Uh, I doubt it. But the hive's working together. And we know it's working together for very specific reasons. And we know it's an altruism. We talked about that. But... In fact, if you want to know more about altruism, take the new evolutionary psychology course available next year. Assuming you pass the same on Friday. Um, typically, what you would worry about here is other rivals finding out about where the food is, but this isn't an issue here. They're all related, right? The beautiful thing about this is, while it's nice to help your sisters out, it's even better if you can now not leave them out. If what all you do is you just say, it's over there. It's 20 degrees from, uh, off from the sun. It's 647 meters over there. You go nuts. I'll be back here. i got to rest a bit, and I don't want to get prayed upon. So there's a little bit of selfish probably in there as well. But the other thing is you're giving them a direct line, so they're going to be pretty efficient at getting there. So it's really the neat thing about the sort of social insects is you can see something like this. Well, one of the costs, the idea of the inter other animals interpreting the signal here is exceedingly low. It's exceedingly low. What could happen? And you'd have to have other animals sort of sneaking into the hive and looking, and I don't think that's going to happen. So typically we worry about that. We worry about, um, will other animals figure out where figure out the, the, the signal, but you know, there's, there's not much chance here. So it's exceedingly unlikely with bees. Exceedingly unlikely. Now we know, so push through with this. We know that honeybees put this onto their own map like representation. And we know this from a really cool experiment Gould did, not Stephen Jay Gould, a different Gould. Where he took, he had a, a he took, we hit, there's a river here, so there's some water. That's water. And then he's got a boat. There's a boat. And then he's got a big bunch of sugar on the boat. First you get the sugar. This is reference, but that's what we got it. So there's a big bunch of sugar. There's a big boat, there's a big river too, a big lake. It's like it's just like over a kilometer, okay? So he's in the middle of this lake. And there's a beehive here on, on the shore. And it's either a beehive or one of those Fisher Price toys where you pile up the that's what So there's a beehive on the on the shore. He takes some bees from this hive and takes them out onto the water. They, of course, are quite pleased with a whole bunch of sugar. They, of course, fly home because they're very good at navigating. Bees navigate by using a sun compass, which you should have guessed by the fact that they have this 
solar compass thing going on with their, with their dance. But they use the sun compass, they use patterns of polarized light in the sky. Bees are really quite amazing. I think I told you that my friend Ken Chang said that bees, pound for pound, cognitively most complex animal on the planet. Plus, they use local landmarks, they use retinal size matching, this whole thing. We know they get back to the, the hive. Do any bees come here? No. Okay, you might think, well, it's too far. So on the other side of shore, there's more food. So what he does is half the bees he takes over here to the boat, and the other half he takes to the other side. So if, if this was like here, this is, you know, like Station Mall, this is the middle of the St. Mary's River, and this is the Tower of History, the all-time lamest thing in the history of the world. You've been to the Tower of History? It's okay, you're not missing much. I have no problem with Sioux, Michigan. I don't like the Tower of History. It sounds good. You go in, you're all interested in history, it's like, oh, look, pictures in a tower. Where did I pay to get in here? I can find those pictures on Google Image Search and stand up my office. It's up high. I call my office the Tower of Psychology. And I'll just charge people ten bucks to get in. So all the way across, let's say, to Michigan, the bees do come here. They just don't go here. So what this is saying is the bees already know, through experience, that there's water there. And they get back, they get very excited, of course, because it's a big pile of sugar in water. Like, it's super saturated sugar. It's like, it's like better than high fructose corn syrup. Right? Which is nature's perfect food. Along with trans fats. Kidding. So you got that right in the middle there. And over here, they don't come back. But they do go here. So they'll fly right over the water. But the bees come back, they, they, they do the dance language, we know they must need to get the information out there, but they don't go back. Nobody else shows up. Basically, the other bees put the, you know, okay, so it's 25 degrees, I mean, the sun's over here, let's say, so it's, you know, whatever, let's make it here, so it's 270 degrees from the sun, and it's... 600 meters, whatever the hell it is. Wait a second. If I put that by my calculations, it would be. That's in the middle of the water. There's no food in the middle of water. This bee's insane. But they do go across. And because they're all females, when they go across here, they go to the back door, the drinks are only 75 cents. <laughs> Isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty neat. That's a pretty neat little experiment. Did the bees that were originally brought to the boat return to it? I'm sorry? The bees that were originally brought to the boat, they return to it? I don't think so. I don't think so. You think that they would... You would. But of course, if everybody else is going the other to the other one, they as well go over there. They may also, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. I actually don't know the answer to this paper in a while. I don't think that anybody came back. I don't think anybody came back. You know, I'll dance this out, but I must be mistaken. You know, I'd take this with a grain of salt. 
or sugar, as the case may be. So it's pretty neat, though. I mean, this this really shows that they're they're putting all this information together in a thing that's you know, this big, an invertebrate. So that's pretty cool. Now, sometimes it might be the case that other animals get the signal. Not going to happen with the bees. Uh, the only other animals going to get it are the other members of your of your hive, and they're all your super sisters anyway. So, um, in Tungura frogs, they do, uh, which we have here, good looking animals. They do, the females like what's called the Wayne Chuck call. Or Wine Chuck. Yeah, it's like Wang Chuck. This grabs the babes wild. They love it. It's wine chuck, wine chuck, wine chuck. This is something females really dig. Um, but so are bats. <laughs> and this is one of these cases where bats are always driving evolution, it seems. What are they, I don't know what they do. So bats are tuned into this too, because it's like, oh, listen, we enjoy eating frogs. Let's. Remember, evolution off an arms race. Let's tune into the wine chuck song. But females like wine chuck. So the thing is, that it's like females really like this sound. Means you're going to get a mating opportunity. The problem is, you also might get eaten. So when you're on your own, just wine, wine, because the bats won't notice that as much. Females won't either, but you got to try. You're a male. You gotta try to have sex. Everywhere you go at all times. That's what males do. We're not proud of it, we're just wired that way. I mean frogs, I'm not talking about people. I'm very enlightened. However, when you're with a bunch of other males, like we talked about herding the other day, right? It's like, oh, oh that's all wine chuck the hell in. It's worth a, it's worth a chance. I might get eaten by a bat, but there's a better chance of me getting laid. So, what the hell? It's a selfish herd, right? Very cool. Toads, more about frogs and toads. They call, and the biggest females respond. The biggest females are the ones that tend to have the best fitness. Okay. Um, well, what can happen here is, and you can see this picture here, we have, it's hard to actually see it when it's all blown up like that, but we have a male, and basically the female has attacked it. If you're too small, what the female does is she attacks and eats you. Because she's much bigger than the male. So if you're kind of small, you want to take the chance of, of calling for a mate. The downside is the best females are really big. So they show up, and they just jump on top of these males and eat them. 
So it almost pays here. Like I said, you might get what you want. You actually might get a female showing up, but she ends up killing you. Right? So you don't get a mating opportunity, you just become, you just dinner. So there's a cost. In this case, the cost is actually that you're, you're giving it an honest signal, and that's even costly. Right. I thought we get this done. That's why I said we also do uh, meeting systems. Yeah. Um, animals can get all the time. Uh, there's smells, there's uh, calls, there's lots of other signals. Okay, so all kinds of ways animals can communicate. Um, the thing is, others can learn to pick up on the signal. It's nothing like language. None of this is anything like human language. We say dance language of the honeybee because it sounds all eloquent and poetic, but it's not a language. Language has symbolism and syntax. Um, the bee stuff is symbolic, sure. But is it, does it have, well, the rules of grammar here. Can you make up a new dance? No. You can make up with human language new sentences, stuff, can't you? Right? As I pick up this piece of chalk and put it here, I've never said that sentence in my life, I'm pretty sure. Because I don't usually narrate my life. So I'm pretty sure I've never said that before. You all knew what it meant. I knew what it meant as I said it. And it's brand new. So well, there's something special that we do as humans. Human language. And it probably, in humans, evolved out of uh, gestures. This is our guess. This is the best guess now. Because if you look at our closest relatives, they have gestural uh, communication. And also facial expressions. So if you look at the chimps, they certainly use gestures. And chimps have a primitive version of a broca's area. Primitive just means old. Um, which we have, which of course is especially used for speaking. Um, the guess here, and there's no way we'll probably ever know this, but the guess here is that at first, humans and sort of ape men kind of things were doing gestural kind of stuff. And then of course, wouldn't it be a little bit more valuable if you could also go like... Right, point at something or whatever. Um, so it, it probably evolved with that. And we can take a look at, um, you can do casts of the inside of skulls and see the size of Broca's area changing and getting bigger and bigger as the human species change to get to eventually uh, H. sapiens and sapiens. That's us. So what we have is something special. We have something special. Um, it's I mean, even even Ewan McPhail, we talked about learning, and he said there were no differences between any animals. He certainly conceded that human language was special compared to everything else every other species did. So there is something neat and special about us. Can we teach apes American Sign Language? We can make it so it looks like they do, yeah. Um, are they communicating? Oh, hell yes. I have no doubt there's communication going on there. There's no argument that when we have apes uh, that, have, that, have, that have learned uh, some uh, signing, that, that they communicate. I, I, there's no argument. But so has your dog when it whines by the door to go out and take a pee. It's communicating right there. Is it actually talking to you? No. Right? Your dog never comes up with a brand new sentence. Doesn't happen. Um, and even if it's the case, that apes 
can be taught to use sign language because they can't really be taught to speak. They don't have the gear. There's something special about our vocal cords that allows us to do this. Uh, even if they can be, who taught them? We did. So they didn't even invent it. This is something that, and I mean invent intellectually, evolutionarily, not, you know, like they're sitting down going, if we could only invent a way to speak. You know. um, so I think to me, that's pretty special. Um, saying that they're not communicating would be ridiculous. Making it similar to what we do with language, I think, is a little bit strong. Yeah, Jordan? I know. You know that parrot that they taught? Alex the parrot. Yes, Alex I do. Did he, like, combine anything? Like, did he learn? Like, or was he just... Yeah, I mean, there's something... I don't know what was going on with Alex. Um, and it's very compelling. The data from Alex are very compelling. Um, Alex was able to combine things Alex had never put together before. So you can teach Alex the concept of yellow, and it would say, yellow! And you can teach it small, medium, and large, even sort of relative things. And you can say, we would teach the two together. And then you can say, Alex, find me the medium-sized yellow thing. And Alex would pick up the medium-sized yellow thing and show it to you. Alex, tell me about that one. Hey, in red. Pretty impressive stuff. The problem is here we have an N of one. We have one parent. That's one of the problems here. Um... I've seen Irene Pepperberg, the uh, person who did all this work, talk on a number of occasions, and it's compelling stuff, and it's exceedingly compelling when she shows a video. When the parrot says, uh, when it doesn't want to do the experiment anymore, it says, I want to go to sleep. Um, <laughs> and she says, one more, one more. And I think she gets into like an argument, or her graduate students do with these parrots. Uh, well, we used to get that with the squirrel monkeys in the larva side. If they didn't want to do the experiment, you knew. But trying to get a parrot, you know, frankly, I'm not saying I do this, but you can pick a parrot up and say, oh, I'm sorry, you're doing this. <laughs> Squirrel monkey can jump on your face and rip it apart. So he was like, you don't want to play? Okay, sounds good to me. I'll pull your cage back up. You go back to masturbating. Um, this is a lot of what these monkeys did, I was just saying. Especially when a certain female graduate student entered the, their holding room, which I told her to take as a compliment. That's <laughs> what he had to say. It was only when Maria had to come in. Maria. <coughs> she was tougher than any guy I've ever met. You should just look at them and yell at them and swear at them and stuff. But it was creepy. Um, yeah, I don't know what was going on with Alex. And I mean, I think those of us in the animal cognition community, I don't think any of us really know. I mean, it's convinced that they have the intellectual capability to do something like language. I am not as convinced as she is that they are my experiments. I understand why she's convinced. She's seen this stuff for 20 odd years. Um, the biggest problem I have with it is that it's such a small number of subjects. It may be the case that, and she had is training other animals. She's training other animals. So it may be the case that this does get to the point where we can say, yeah, something special is happening here. But until that day comes, uh, I'll reserve my judgment on it. I'll say that. But it is, it is damn interesting. I just don't know if it's human language or not. Has the animal learned concepts? Oh, yeah. But that doesn't surprise me. And the animal has a novel way of, 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 of responding because it can mimic human speech. So that was what you call an equivocal answer. It was a five-minute way for me saying, I don't know, I'm not sure. 
Other questions about communication with animals? Yeah, please me. Um, about the uh, biggest female feed the male? That's right. Why does she have to eat the male? Because they're, they're food. <laughs> so they just want food? Well, the males want to mate. The females want to mate, but they also want to mate with really good males. Little tiny males are losers. Eat them. Okay. I mean, that's basically the idea. They're, they're, if they're that small, they're not going to be successful. Right? So she just eats them. Because more beneficial to eat them than mating. Yeah. I, and they aren't getting really anything out of it, right? Because they haven't made If they made it with her first, it'd be like, fine, they get something out of it. But they haven't even made it with her. You know, they're just like, they're like the guys at, at, at a bar that no one ever goes out with. Like me in my 20s, just sitting in the corner. <laughs> Early 20s. Um, as far as the cat uh, rubbing, yeah. that they rub their necks and that leaves the scent. That's right. Okay. Is no part of that affection at all? Oh, I don't know. I think some of it probably is. But I, I think that people over, people anthropomorphize what, what pets do all the time, right? You know. Yeah. Um, look at my dog smiling. No, it's not. <laughs> Your dog's not smiling. Um, well, frankly, it's like a pet. Uh, if you had a chimp, like when chimps make a smiling face, they're actually frightened. The human smile may have, in fact, evolved out of the fear face from uh, chimps. The idea is, I'm afraid of you, you're afraid of me, so let's all be friends, kind of thing. Um, I don't know if I buy that, but a chimp, which looks like a human smile, it's, it's, it's an abject fear reaction to chimp. Um, I don't know. I, I I doubt there's a great deal of affection there. When I say affection, something like a bond, because frankly, cats aren't social animals. They don't pair bond for life. They do the mud. The, the females do some do, do some uh, maternal care, right? They're, they're mammals, so they, they they nurse them and they take care of them. They feed them, but very quickly they're off and up. It's not like cats live in family groups. There's one cat that that's social, and that's the lion. Right? Everything else, they're solitary animals. You know, when people say, oh, I need another, my cat needs another cat to have it take, uh, keep it company when I'm away. No, it doesn't. Um, it's, it's, it's a solitary animal. So I would be surprised if they're even sort of programmed for that kind of thing. Whereas a dog, because they're in the dominance hierarchies and they're, they're, they're built that way, the idea that a dog would lie down and show you its belly, which is a, which is a submission signal, eh? Talk communication. That's a signal of submission. That's the dog saying, you can kill me if you'd like. Right? Because that's the most vulnerable part of a dog. Have you ever seen two dogs fight? Very rarely does it get to, unless you've got, you know, you're Michael Vick and you're training dogs to kill each other. Um, very rarely when two dogs are going after each other. Like, you know, if you're walking your dog and it runs into another dog and they go to get into it a bit, very quickly one of them lies down and shows its throat and its belly. And that's like, I get it. Now, what's the function of that, right? The function of that is to say it, it, it stops deadly encounters. And if everybody, if that meant an honest signal, right? Dogs don't go, I give, and then jump up and attack. Right? So, dogs have all these signals, but dogs also do things like they will um, take commands very well. Right? They will come up and, and sort of uh, they, I, think they, I think they actually do genuinely show something that's like affection 
And the reason I think that is because, in fact, it makes complete sense to do that in, in something that is a social animal that has a dominance hierarchy. In social animals, I get it. In non-social animals, I don't see where it would come from, unless it's mother to young. Now, I will say that most house cats aren't really, don't really act like adults. We don't let them act like adults. If they act like adult cats, you wouldn't even want them around your house. They act like uh, young. So in that case, maybe it, maybe it is true because we also could, could be the case that it's sort of like a, a mother child like they're a child. We don't let we don't get them to hunt, right? And they don't have to find their own food. Yeah, I know some cats are and they kill birds, and cats shouldn't be allowed outside because they kill hundreds of millions of birds a year. Twenty-five million black cat chickadees alone are killed in Canada a year. Like people say, my cat has to live out in the great outdoors. It's natural. Um, you know what else is natural? Living outside in the without clothes. That's natural. Let's try that. Um, <laughs> the natural thing really bugs me. I saw somebody on Facebook the other day say they were giving up their credit cards because of their evolutionary ancestors wouldn't understand credit cards and they never had them. Like, they also wouldn't understand the computer you're using. They would think it was a magic box and you would be their god. Anyway, um, so with cats, what we have them do or so you can see some of this juvenile behavior. When you put something soft in front of a cat, what does it do? Does this, right? Pushes on it. You know what it's doing? What the function of that behavior is? It's looking for a nipple. And you can see a 14 or 15 year old cat do that. They're adults. They're adults. It's a rooting reflex. It's looking for a nipple. It's the same thing would happen. Like now, human babies don't do that, but they will if you touch their face. They'll turn their their mouth towards where your finger is, right? It's looking for a nipple. It's like the rooting reflex. It's very common in, in, in uh, all kinds of animals. Right? So this is what uh, a 14 or 15 year old cat will do. And they're still acting like young. So I mean, there may be some affection there because they, in fact they are acting like young. If you look at real feral cats, like if you look at the cats that live in the Colosseum in Rome, because people have done work on these things, they are not at all like human, the, the cats that live with humans. Because with all these cats, they live at all on their own. And they have for generations. They're a lot more like little freaking tigers. They hunt. Uh, they sleep in the day. They're nocturnal. They're up at night hunting. All this stuff. Things that we wouldn't think of our house cats doing. Right? We also still see play behavior in, in, in cats even when they're adults. So it may be the case that we're talking about uh, almost uh, a bond with a mother kind of thing. That, I, would, I guess, I would buy. But if you take a, a cat that's lived on the street for a year, like if you want to go to one of those rescue places and get a cat that's lived on the street for a year, it's a lot different than one you get from somebody who you just got from as a kitten or even really young. So the first cat in your house, if it were to do like market territory, territory on you, the other ones would be more less likely to like interact with the humans, do you think? No, they would also interact, but I think that they would also interact with each other. They would, you'd end up with fights, things like that. You'd also end up, when you have more than one cat, you end up with a lot more cat piss in the air. I grew up with lots of cats. I'm just asking because one of them, that when you said the rubbing, that, that made me laugh. And all of a sudden, I was really frightened, which he was. But like he was always like, crawling on your butt in your face. And now I'm thinking he's marking his territory. And he was by far the nicest cat. And yeah. he had been there the longest. I mean, we had, when I was in grad school, we had three cats. Yeah. And, um, uh... You would often see them. The first time we had we had two, we had one that we wanted to get, and then Isabel came home with another cat. I came home one day and I said, "What's go? Where did that cat come from?" She said, "Well, it's a friend of mine. She's moving to PEI. She wanted to take her cat." So okay, well, two's fine. 
Next day I come home and say, okay, there's an extra one now. So free. And that night, in our basement of our apartment, because we have the bottom floor of a house in the basement, um, I hear this horrible noise. I go downstairs and there's this standoff of three cats hissing at each other. That whole thing. It was cool in its own way. But, um, and there, it was, it was vit- unlike with dogs, where you will get a dominance hierarchy and everybody gets to eat, for example, because it's like a family kind of thing. These cats... Cooper, who was our first cat, and he, he had actually had to live on a street for about six months, they, they figured. We got him like a rescue mission kind of place. He was very cool. Um, he, he, uh, the other cat would come up and he'd just slap it like that. And he had, he had his claws, so he'd they'd be like, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> we'd have to feed them in separate rooms. They were brothers, the two of them. And we'd feed them in, separate, in a separate room from Cooper, because Cooper just wouldn't let him eat. He was great. He, knew, he, he would come to his name. He would roll over on command. I figured I'm doing a PhD in animal learning. If I can't teach this damn thing to do a couple of things, so I'm going to go, lie down, lie down. So people go, how did you do that? I said, it's reinforcement, man. It's possible. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting looking at companion animals, cats, whatever I call them. I hate companion animals. I love pets. Um, people anthropomorphize a lot about them. Any other questions about this stuff? I wonder if we should, uh, what should we do here? Okay, did you see your, there was going to be something out that we could check off for uh, what we'd like to do more? Yeah, I sent you all an email. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. You didn't get it? No. No. Unless you sent it to my elbow. Well, that's where I would send it, yes. What else would I send it? <laughs> I don't know all your email addresses. Maybe on Facebook. I'm going to use Facebook. I'm going to all your names. Do you want to talk a little bit about this, or do you want to just stop now? It's up to you. This is all bonus content. This is uh, this is the DVD experts here. Okay, we're gonna do this now, because then we can then we can actually do it and get it done by the end of the, at the end of the next class. And we still have time for a review. But I, I want to. I think this is good stuff to talk about. Um, so this is about mating systems. Males involved in mating usually ends after the mating. In most species, that's what males are like. They don't stay around for breakfast. They just leave. I've got a meeting in the morning. I've got to see a guy about a thing. Whoa. That one there. I'm supposed to be something there. Well, maybe not. Sometimes there's stuff like uh, post-birth or hatching care. Okay? Sometimes there is. We know that uh, in humans. It's just quite a well, in elephants, other things. Uh, a lot of birds, you get monogamy, so you get air bonding for life. because it's exactly what that would be. Um, we should expect polygyny, which is one male, many females. Um, when males have more than one mate, that's, wait a second, Dave, that sounds kind of obvious. Well, it is necessarily because if the females and the males both mated and had an equal number of partners, that's not really polygyny. 
Polygamy, or polyandry, is defined as the variance in number of uh, mates. So if there's more variance among males than there is among females, we have polygamy. Okay? So what that means is the average might even be the same, but the variance is bigger among males. That means that some males are getting lots of mates and some males aren't getting very many. And it's by far the most common mating system in nature, is polygamy. Okay? It's one male to many females. Okay, there's a lot of theories about polygamy. One of them is resource defense polygamy. Uh, basically, here the male defends some good resource. Um, and because he's got such a good set of resources, Right, he can support many females. A nice example here is hummingbirds, and you see there's a hummingbird there. Hummingbirds are pretty amazing little animals. A lot of times, if you think it's a great big bee that's floating in the air, it was actually a hummingbird, which is kind of cool. Um, usually, they sound like this. They don't sound like. Uh, those sometimes those are English hornets, and those are very scary bugs. That's a whole different thing. But little honey, uh, hummingbirds, what they're doing is they're. Um, the resource for them is nectar-giving flowers. We talked with them, we talked with the uh, uh, territoriality. So it's probably the case here that with, with, what they can do is if I've got a territory with a whole lot of nectar-giving flowers in it, I can defend that resource, uh, and I can defend that resource, I can then support more than one mate. Okay? So that's the, the notion here of resource defense polygamy. Um, so what happens is the male sets up the territory, and, and he, of course, by doing so, he is, he's excluding other males, isn't he? He has to be. Then it wouldn't be a territory if he wasn't. They basically exchange letting the female feed for populations. Okay? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an exchange. It's a transaction. It's like that old joke, right? We've already determined what you are. We're now just haggling about the price. You don't know that joke? I'll tell you later. <laughs> I only know the punchline, actually. <laughs> and I thought everyone in the world knew that joke. Okay! Apparently not. It's like natural gifts. In the, in the end of flies, except this time the gift itself is stationary. It's a whole bunch of nectar. Right? It's insects like bad insects. Yeah. It's insects. Oh, it's insects. Yeah. <laughs> it's insects. The most devious of the bugs. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They go through meat face though, and everything ends up fine. <laughs> I still love meat face. It's the greatest thing ever. Insects. <laughs> So this like the, uh, um, <laughs> I just added it down on the fly. Um, the female set up a little territory within the male's territory, so it's a breeding territory, right? So she's got a little sub-territory within the male's territory. So that's pretty cool. So I mean, it, but remember, the male sets up his territory first, then the female shows up. And he, if he allows her to stay, she can set up a breeding territory, but, uh, you know, there's a cost to this to her. 
in some respects, a cost, which is that she has to now mate with that man. Of course, if he's a good male, it's, it's a good thing. The notion here is there's something called the polygamy threshold. The idea is when would a female, when would a female decide to be a secondary female? Because usually among the females, there's a pecky one. Right? There's the number one female, the number two female, etc. When do you decide the evolutionary decision? Don't think, and I don't, almost everyone here, everybody here's a woman, I said me and Jordan. So don't think that I'm saying that they're making a conscious decision that, oh, well, I'll be a second wife, not a first one. No, no. This is an evolutionary decision they're making. This isn't some TLC reality show. Sister Wives, isn't that what that's about? I'm just guessing. I saw the show title and I figured I don't want to watch that. So it's when the polygamy is going to occur when the polygamy threshold is crossed. Okay. This is, this is the payoff for a primary female. And this is the um, quality of the male's territory down here. And this is the average reproductive success of that female. And we have a bunch of different males here. Okay? At some point, it makes sense to be a secondary female on a really awesome territory. Rather than being a number one female on a so-so territory. Right? The returns are better because this male's got such a good territory that even if you go over here and mate with Eddie, Eddie's uh, territory isn't nearly as good as Steve's. And Steve's is awesome, uh, even though you'd be number two. And migratory songbirds almost all work like this, where the males set up territories and then the females arrive a couple days later and they choose the mates. And you'll see this, where the, the, guy, the guy that has the best territory is getting three and four females. And the others are maybe getting just a few. Maybe two or one. The female really has always only mating with one male. Again, the variance is zero almost for the females. And there is variance for the males. So you see what's happening here? Just that it pays to be a secondary female. That's what this says. It pays better than being a primary. If, if it pays better than being a primary female to be a secondary female, you should be a secondary female. So, differences of qualities of available territory crosses the polygamy threshold and polygamy results. So again, more profitable for the female, a secondary female, high-end male, than be a primary female with a mid-range male. And it's interesting when you look at the human example, um, in societies and cultures where, 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 where polygamy is allowed, um, there are typically rules about it, and they involve things like, can you support more than one wife? Right? So if you look at a lot of rules, um, if I'm not mistaken, in Islam that allows more than one wife, it's also pretty clear in their religious text that you can only do this if you can give the second wife as good a life as you can give the first one. You can't just do this because you like the ladies. It says that. I don't know what really happens, but that's what it says. Monogamy. 
not only should happen if the curves, those curves between the primary and secondary female are really far apart, or those curves are flat. In other words, everybody's got a really good territory. If everybody's got a good territory, why become a secondary female? Or there's so little advantage between the secondary female because everyone's got, I guess they're not all really good, it just has to all be the same. Right? So Vernon Wilson actually looked at this, these predictions. They looked at marsh birds. These are birds that, 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 that mate on marshes. The quality varies quite greatly on a marsh uh, versus non-marsh birds where it's not such variation. These are just different uh, songbirds. You know, a marsh is like a kind of swamp, right? Kind of idea? Do you know that word? You should get more monogamy in non-marsh looking songbirds then, shouldn't you? Because the territory value is roughly the same. There's no really high-end male. There's no really low-end male. There's just males. <clears throat> Why is it very more just because of, like, the marsh itself? Yeah, it's got something to do with just basically on the marsh. Sometimes there's, there's areas that are much more watery. Soggy. There's much food. They're soggier. It's hard to put a nest there, etc. Yeah. Whereas if it's a non-marsh bird, if you're in a field in the forest, or in the forest, you know, part of a patch of forest is a patch of forest. Right? And especially if you're a marsh bird, you're probably eating a lot of insects. And if you're in the right part of a marsh, you know, it's like it's a, it's a mosquito, uh, all you can eat mosquito buffet. Right? Okay, marsh species, 44% of them are polygonous. And non-marsh species, 2% are polygonous. It seems like a pretty good idea here that it's something to do with the quality of the male's territory. That's right, and the variance of that quality. You can also get something where the resource, in fact, just is females. And you get something called female defense polygamy. In bison, this happens, where basically what happens is males mate with females and then follow them around, making sure no other males mate with them. Right? It's like the uh, jealous boyfriend that when you go out with your, with your, with your friends and he follows you. It can be like that kind of thing. Well, I'm just going out with a bunch of girls. Well, yeah, well, uh, where? <laughs> I'll be using that to find my iPhone app tonight. This is kind of like lek breeding, right? I mean, the resource now is just females. There's, there's no <laughs> the middleman of, of the of, of the territory is gone. Kind of like lek breeding, where the quality of the territory is completely symbolic here. What he's done is he's found a bunch of females, he's baited them, and then he follows them around, making sure no one else does. And if they do, he has a fight with that other man. Jersey Shore or something. I've never seen the show. Don't watch it. I don't know. I have. I just know that it exists. I honestly have it. Whenever those people come on TV, like if they're on Letterman or something, I turn the channel because I think it's the decline of Western civilization. It is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, let's talk about monogamy a little bit because you know humans are supposed to be monogamous. What should monogamy happen? When the younger are need lots of parental care, right? When that's one possibility. When territories are poor, or when females actually enforce it. 
Why should a female enforce it? Well, then she's getting all the male's attention. When I say attention, I mean that attention's a resource, right? Because it involves bringing food, uh, defense, all these kind of things. So it makes sense for the female, if she can, to get everything she can from them, right? Now, some monogamous species aren't monogamous, one of those being humans. When you look at the, the variants, this is even true in Western industrialized society, where we have, where monogamy is thought of as a, 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 a it's, it's held up as a good thing, you know? Uh, most of us find it weird that people, uh, uh, like these, these people that have, uh, this is why there are shows about, uh, on TLC, about people that have more than one wife, about, about, about polygamous couples, right? Technically, it's illegal in most of our countries to do that. It's unenforceable because it's probably unconstitutional to make that illegal, but it's, you know, we don't like it. But when you take a look at the variance in the number of sex partners a male's had versus a female, even in Western industrial society, we're mildly polygamous. When you take a look at what happens when, um, when a wife loses a husband, it's much less common. I mean, like from, from something like either divorce or from, from uh, a husband dying, it's much less common for her to remarry than it is for the male to do that, on the other hand, if the male loses a wife. Much more common for a male to go out and find another person. Females don't do that as well. Dave? Yep? Do you, um, well, I guess you today have, like, um, less males? No. 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 Do you think it'd be different? Like, is there a reason for that? I just was assuming that there would be less males because they're, like, having more females. No. No. The only time you, um, you might get polyandry. In humans, we've got polyandry, which is, which is, which is vanishingly rare, which is one female to many males. We get that very rarely, and we tend to get that in societies where there's a shortage of males. Um, usually after horrific wars and things like that, you'll see that. Mm -hmm. um, but typically, uh, no, the, the sex ratio is going to be 50-50. Okay. So, so most a lot of monogamous things we think of as being monogamous actually aren't monogamous. Right. We do pair bond. Humans pair bond. There's no doubt about that. The most common kind of mating system we see today, but we're sort of people, you've heard people say we're serial monogamists? That's also, that means polygonist. We're polygonists. Because the males tend to go on to more females than the females go on to more males. Now, extraparacopulation is being called as cheating on your spouse. This happens a lot in birds. Uh, this happens especially a lot in ducks. Um, ducks, uh, it also of course happens with people. Uh, ducks, uh, actually, um, there are forced copulations in ducks where males, uh, for lack of a better word, rape females. They force copulate with them. It's a mating strategy. It's not a nice, pretty one. And because I said it was natural, I mean, I said it was good. It tends to be low-ranking males. The interesting thing is when you look at rapists among humans, they tend to be people on the outside of society that have had very little success with women. 
we can view it as a mating strategy. We need to view it as a pleasant one. We need to view it as not a crime. But viewing it as a completely non-sexual thing to me is a little bit odd as there's sex involved. But even when it's just extra pair copulations, in other words, you know, just screwing around on your wife, we see this. What we get here is it's called sperm competition. Um, this is usually when the females are guarded or when the male can get away with it in essence. Sperm competition literally means that. It means within the female, this is with, with, with animals that have internal fertilization, within the female there is competition of sperm between a uh, sperm from one male and another. And one of the places that's talked a lot about this is the book Sperm Wars, which some of you may have heard me talk about before. Um, this is a tremendously interesting topic because what these people did, a couple of British researchers, is they sent out ads in newspapers uh, saying, are you cheating on your wife? Are you cheating on your husband? Would you like to be a research center? So what they did is, after sex, they would collect condoms um, that, of course, had semen samples in them. They would also collect... Uh, swabs uh, from inside the vagina to get the pH level uh, in, in the vagina. Okay? Now, when a male is cheating on his wife okay, or girlfriend, whatever, but when a male is cheating, when he is with his mistress, his ejaculate contains more sperm than it does when he's with his wife. It also, his ejaculate contains more killer sperm. These are sperm that are hunter killer sperms. They go out and they attack foreign sperm. Do you remember when you were learning in health class about all these malformed sperms that are called? No. Some of those are egg guarding sperms and some of those are killer sperms. There are very few. There are some that are poorly put together too. Now remember, the male's goal typically in having sex with a woman that is not his wife is not to father a child. In fact, he's wearing a condom, that's how they collected the data. Nonetheless, our evolution has told us. Our evolution says that, you know, we know that the, the function of sex is, is, is having babies. And when you have the extra pair population, you want to have a kid. You don't really probably want to, I know in your head, you know. Let's go the other way. Let's look at the female when she is sleeping with her lover versus when she is sleeping with her husband. When she is sleeping with her husband, first of all, when she's sleeping with her lover, she has more orgasms. Now, this may be the reason she's cheating on her husband. But the function of female orgasm is to actually pick sperm up and take it into the uterus. That's what happens. That's what all those contractions and things mean. You can actually, nobody knew this for the longest time. And with the aid of very small cameras, this was figured out. And in fact, the cervix goes down and literally picks up a pool of sperm and pulls it in during orgasm. Yes, I know, perhaps the guy's a better lover, perhaps it's more exciting, so she has more orgasms. Not that I know. But what's the function of the orgasm? Then, 
When she's with her love, when she's with her husband, she doesn't have as many orgasms, which is interesting. So now she's not getting, less likely to get pregnant. And also, her vaginal secretions are more acidic, meaning they're more likely to kill his sperm. Pretty amazing. So that's sperm competition. That's happening in humans. Yeah, please. Why does it make sense then? Or I guess, why does it have sense? I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, why would they want to increase their fitness with um, their lover or someone who they're not married to? Like, Why would that make evolutionary oh, no. sense? It makes evolutionary sense because the reason for exoparent copulations, the reason for copulations is to have babies. Mm-hmm. Um, females tend to have... Uh, Women tend to have affairs with men of higher status than their husbands. Or more, either higher status or more, uh, uh, or they're better looking. Things that indicate of good genes. Also, evolutionarily, the reason you have sex is to have babies. And you would have an extra pair of population to make it more likely for you to have a baby. Right? So, this is what actually makes evolutionary sense to do this. So, like, for possibility of a better mate. Yeah. Even though, in fact, the, and we know that, I mean, I'm not saying you guys all cheated on your husbands and boyfriends and stuff. But we all know that the idea here is to not get pregnant typically. And we know all these people were all using condoms because that's they collected the data. Nonetheless. It's amazing stuff. Other questions about that? Perfect. We'll finish this up next time. We'll do some questions for the test. Yes, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.